How many children? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> many. <laughs> many. Like all your nieces and nephews.
Welcome to the Arts Report for March 12th, 2014. I have live in the studio UBC professor, Dr. Nathan Hesselnick. He's an ethnomusicologist here to talk about the upcoming event at the Chan Center. Kim Duck Sue and Samuel Nori. We'll also talk about the Vancouver International Dance Festival and have some great tickets to give away for local films. And stay tuned at 6 p.m. for Arts on Air. Hi, welcome everybody. It's that time again, Wednesday, and I just played The New Pornographers, New Face of Zero and One, and that's one of my favorite New Pornographers songs, um, because I like the percussion part at the beginning. Kurt Dahl plays on his sticks, and there's some really great drumming in that song, and I wanted to play it because we have Dr. Nathan Hesselnick in, and he is into percussion. I'm just going to bring him on now. Hello. Right. Hi. Hi. Um- First thing I should say, I just noticed that my last name is misspelled. It's actually Hesselink. Hesselink. Link. Yeah. I knew that, but I wrote this on my, hurriedly wrote this on my <laughs> lunch hour. Um, yeah, well, there aren't too many other <laughs> other people remotely close last names. So anyways, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. And I don't know much about the music department at UBC. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your area and what you do at UBC. Well, it's, uh, we have a school of music, which means we're fairly large, and um, we have most of the, well, at least classical instruments and jazz instruments, uh, and also vocal genres covered uh, by the expertise of the faculty at school. But um, within my area, which is sort of the fancy word is ethnomusicology, but really it's it's a world music uh, department within the school of music. Um, we have three full-time faculty, and we have a faculty emeritus, and each one of us sort of specialized in different parts of the world. So my area, for the most part, has been Japan and South Korea. And I have a colleague who uh, does a lot of uh, Africa and another one who does Southeast Asia and an emeritus professor who's been researching Chinese music for many, many years. So, um, But outside of that, we also um, kind of address broader issues that have to do with uh, intercultural uh, transmission and uh, the way that musics travel around the world, um, but but a lot of it is you know primarily non-Western music. So that's kind of what at least my colleagues and I are sort of bumping around here at UBC. So if you were to be a student in that department, um, would you play African music and study it, or is it more of an academic study? Um, on the books, it's it's more of academic study, um, but we do have performance ensembles, which is something that sort of sets us apart from a lot of similar programs. So we, we actually have a Korean drumming ensemble, which I lead, and we have an incredible African drumming ensemble, and a Chinese ensemble, and also a Balinese gamelan. So actually students, uh, both majors and non-majors, can take these ensembles for uh, for credit. And I think... Uh, most students will say that that's probably their favorite aspect of the program. I mean, I guess... You know, we try to do our best in the academic courses, too. But the, the performance classes, I think, where a lot of students really, um, they really interface with us. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you've had quite a long career. You studied at Berkeley, is that right? Um, I did a postdoctoral degree okay. at Berkeley. Oh, wow. And what was that like? Um, well, the whole Bay Area, I'm from the U.S. originally, but from a much less interesting uh, and less glamorous place in the Midwest. Um, and so uh, the whole kind of Berkeley, San Francisco area, uh, not just the vibe of the place, but the music that was going on there and the university, of course. I was there in Korean studies for, for my um, postdoctoral fellowship. And um, 
really amazing people coming through town all the time, and uh, the grad students and the scholars there, it was really tremendous. And I would say, outside of maybe Vancouver, one of my, my favorite places to live. Okay. And you started out in the Midwest teaching there? Uh, no, sort of, um, again, sort of uh, misspending my youth, I guess, um, in Michigan, on the on the west coast of Michigan. And um, and then from there, I, I did some schooling in the Midwest as well. And then, and then after... My undergraduate days basically just started traversing the globe. I mean, both both for graduate school, but also for you know private research and my own my own interests. Wow, that sounds like a really exciting life path. For the most part, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you, but I did notice on RateMyProfessor.com that you got absolutely stellar reviews from the students. Did yeah, you know that? Um, I I know of my previous job um, in Illinois. I mean, rate my professor. That's one of those things that. When professors get together uh, at parties or a beer or whatever, and uh, those are very embarrassing things to read, and also you you know you get very um, you you get the spectrum results. You get people who love you and people who sometimes despise you. So th- those are <laughs> those are really um, rate my professor is kind of a boon for most of us. We don't really like it, but um, anyway, yeah, I, I realize it's out there. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't see any negative comments. You were very well liked. Said you were sweet. So, yeah. But anyways, moving on. Um, So tell me about the music of Korea, because that seems to be your passion. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I would say like most countries in the world, it's, um, it's, it's a tradition that has a, a very long history of traditional music, which is, of course, the oldest, the longest history. And this is true of most countries in the world. It's very diverse. It um, represents the full spectrum of uh, vocal music to purely percussive music to chamber music to kind of orchestral, for lack of a better word, orchestral traditions. Um, and so it's incredibly diverse, beautiful, long, deep history in terms of music. But again, like many countries in the world, uh, in the 20th century with modernization, it's it's a culture that has, uh, for many of the population, really become unfamiliar with traditional music. So if you go to Korea today and if you spend time in Seoul or any of the big cities, uh, it's mostly dominated by popular music first, uh, both Korean artists and you know foreign imported artists. And then after that it would probably be classical music and opera. And then sort of way down the list of listening would be the kind of music that actually I'm really interested in in what I teach here, which is represents the traditional music. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about percussion specifically. Yeah, it's, um, of course, percussion is found most places in the world. Um, I, many of my students, when they come into classes, they're more familiar with, for example, um, West African drumming from Ghana, uh, or they're familiar with maybe tabla playing from India or, um, or surrounding regions. But, um, and then perhaps Japan, uh, they, they would know these larger percussion ensemble groups known as taiko. I know Vancouver has a number of taiko groups. Um, and those and those are popular and have been known for some time. But Korea, it has an equally sort of, uh, in terms of historical depth, but I would say in some ways even more varied in a way in terms of the percussion traditions because they have a very uh, developed sort of amateur folk drumming tradition, which is kind of what we're going to be seeing coming up this Saturday at the Chan Center and what I've been working with. There's also um, a highly... Uh, unique and developed shaman drumming tradition, a kind of ritual shaman uh, drumming tradition, which still exists in Korea, but you don't hear so much of it. It doesn't lend itself particularly well to concert hall stage, and so it's more difficult to see them outside of the sort of the original context. And then there's also a beautiful Buddhist drumming tradition as well, which is overlaps with ritual drumming tradition, but 
Um, it, it's a solo tradition, and it's done by monks in front of a very, very large drum. It's almost a kind of meditative act, although uh, it can become very passionate, very loud, um, uh, sort of excitable kind of drumming tradition as well. So you've got all these different kinds of traditions that overlap. There's also a, a smaller uh, court drumming tradition as well, which is a little... It's a little more refined. For me, not as much fun um, as the uh, the ritual or the, the folk drumming, which mm-hmm. is really my area. So have you had a personal experience with that kind of drumming in your travels, like the shamanic or the ritualistic drumming? Yeah, both. My, my first, uh, being so- somewhat brief here because it's easy to go on forever, my first time in South Korea was 1992. And uh, I was actually living in Japan at the time. And uh, I was traveling around Asia like a lot of people do after college. And I was in Korea for about a week, and I had some friends invite me to a traditional music concert um, because they knew that I was interested in traditional music. And so at that concert, uh, there were a number of different kinds of music being performed. And the last piece was this percussion piece for a quartet, uh, which is very much related, again, to this concert coming up on Saturday. But um, it was only about eight or nine minutes, and it's the first time I'd heard Korean percussion quartet. And this was a folk style of drumming, but had been modified for the concert hall stage. Uh, and it was just it was just unbelievable for me. Uh, I mean, I'd always grew up, I mean, I, w- I was a cello player as an undergrad, but secretly wanted to be a, a rock drummer. Yeah. Like a lot of people. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, and the Korean percussion quartet, which I can talk about in, more in a moment, uh, essentially is, is two drums and two gongs. And so you've got the kind of timbres you find on a drum set, although played in a different way, but just incredibly exciting music and so dynamic. And I really... Uh, really bowled me over when I saw that performance. And then after that, I started getting my hands on recordings of Korean percussion. And then um, a year later, I was able to go back to Korea and then saw some of this shamanic drumming, which, to be honest, was really the most exciting thing for me. But I was told by many friends and academics in Korea that, um, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't believe in that particular religious practice and you're not fluent in Korean and, uh, and the fact that also I just was non-Korean ethnically, that to do field research with these people, it would be extremely difficult to to really get into it. And also that the music was so complex. Uh, and pretty much most foreigners stayed away from it for those mm-hmm. very reasons, except except for about five years ago, somebody finally wrote something on the shamanic drumming in English. Um, but that that's highly unusual. Mm-hmm. So you didn't get involved then? Well, I was thinking about uh, trying to get involved in this stage art, actually, the stage percussion I'd seen. But when I went in 93 and again in 94 for summer programs in Korea, um, most of my drumming teachers at the time said, you really should study this older folk drumming, kind of the amateur rural folk drumming, because they argued that was the oldest form of drumming and that pretty much everything else had grown out of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and at the time I had a little bit of a I was just about to become a grad student. I had a bit of a purist bent, which a lot of our grad students do. Right. You know, and so I didn't want anything sort of um, what I thought was modern or contaminated or all these, you know, that's not really how I feel. But um, but at the time, I thought I should go for the, sort of the oldest or most original. So that's how I got into the uh, the folk drumming. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what is, so you have your own practice as well of percussion, as well as studying it, you play. So tell me about your own practice. Yeah, so I... You know, when I started learning, so eventually I ended up um, doing more graduate work in Korean percussion, and that involved living in South Korea for a year. Uh, and I chose to live in the countryside to study with a few very famous rural drumming troops. And during that year, initially I just wanted to document it because it's an oral tradition. Nobody had really written down, to my mind, sort of satisfactory scores of all the music. And it's an incredibly rich um, 
just in terms of numbers of rhythms, including the numbers of kinds of rhythms. And so really my initial goal was to, well, to finish my dissertation and graduate, but also to notate everything I was learning. And this was hours and hours of music. And I had a number of teachers from two quite different traditions. But, but as I'd been there for about seven or eight months, and I still had about four more months to go, um, I'd been taking lessons about five hours a day and learning the dance. This is also a tradition that you dance and play at the same time. And a number of my teachers started asking me, you know, so are you going to teach this back in the West when you're all done? And, you know, to be honest, I hadn't really thought of doing that, uh, you know, in sort of humility and other things, just sort of the, the limits of my ability. But they, they really encouraged me to try to at least certain elements or certain basic elements of it to try to teach it. So when I, when I got back from the field and I still had a couple more years of graduate work, um, I sort of tentatively taught a very small group while I was still a grad student. And I had a really great bunch of students that year. And that, when I saw how well that went and how much fun I had with them, really after that, I, I continued then to go back to Korea almost every summer for about the next seven, eight years. And I continued mm-hmm. taking lessons and tried to develop kind of a repertoire to teach to students. So really, it's, again, this is um, maybe a longer answer than you want. But so now at UBC, um, I'm teaching a Korean drumming group. And it's a style of drumming that it, it's mostly traditional. Um, but I've allowed myself, along with Korean teachers who've encouraged me to sort of add little bits of my own personality to, to sort of change things up a little bit. And also because I'm, I'm teaching the students who are mostly, uh, even who are ethnically Korean, have never studied it before. So it, it's just a different context. I, I, I don't get them five hours a day for years on end. Right. right. So uh, I've, I've, I've changed the teaching methodology a little bit. I've changed some of the rhythms a little bit. But essentially what we do every year in this class, and we, we perform it the, in April every year uh, for the general public, it's, it's pretty close. It's pretty close to what I saw. Excellent. So you've got on your website some compositions that you've created that are based on traditional Korean. Can you tell us a little bit about one of them? Yeah, well, um, yeah, so then... Uh, so I've, I've been working with Korean percussion I, seriously since 1993. Um, and as I kept going back over the summers, I had a couple of kind of, I wouldn't call them rogue teachers, but ones who were also composing in the idiom, because there aren't a lot of people writing new music now for this particular style of drumming. And so they began to encourage me to compose. And, and I'm, I'm not a composer by trade or, or even dreaming or, or, uh, or any other means, but... Um, I just had one teacher who I respected so much, and he just year after year when I studied with him, he kept saying, "Come on, you know, let's let's see a piece, let's let's write a piece." And so, uh, on my website, what I've done, I've I've actually um, composed now uh, three works or three and a half works, I guess you would say, for the ensemble. Um, two of them are very traditional; they're they're based on field work where I went and I learned rhythms and I tried to organize it into a piece. And so, I think for most people, including Koreans, if they would hear those pieces, it's for the traditional instruments; they would hear traditional rhythms. But for me, I think maybe the one I'll highlight today is the um, I've got two versions of it. There's the 2009 version called Hanmi Karak, and this is a piece that I basically mixed some of my favorite Korean rhythms, including a shaman rhythm. Uh, which has never been recorded before. Wow. Um, so that's what the piece opens with. And then I mixed in some of my favorite rock rhythms. Now, I don't think I say this on the website, but this includes rhythms from uh, a couple rhythms that um, The Police and Sting have done. And I think I threw in a rhythm from Journey as well. Um, I, don't, I don't think I <laughs> yes. put that on there. Shamanic rhythm, Journey, <laughs> folk. I like it. Yeah. So now that piece, the the 2009 version, it, it is just written for traditional percussion. So 
I, th- I think for most people hearing it, they're not going to hear the rock rhythms necessarily coming up because they're kind of disguised. And the rhythms I chose are really kind of off-the-wall rhythms. So they're, they're not like common 4-4 four, four rhythms. So like with, without getting too technical, like they're 7-4 rhythms and combinations of 7-8 rhythms mm-hmm. and kind of strange. Well, even the opening uh, shamanic rhythm is interesting because it... Uh, the first fret has eight beats, then nine beats, ten beats, ten beats, nine beats. So already the piece starts off, you know, you can tap your foot to it, but you're not exactly sure where beat one is <laughs> for most of the piece. Right. Yeah. So could, when you say 7-4 rhythm, could you like count it or clap it so we get an idea of what that sounds like compared to, you know, a one, two, three, yeah, four? Yeah, well, basically it's just... Uh, it's the way that it's internally structured. So mm-hmm. the, the larger rhythm is, is you just count off seven beats. So mm-hmm. just basically one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But then, so half the instruments are playing in that rhythm, and the other half are playing, cutting that rhythm in half. So I'm terrible at mathematics, but if you take seven, four, and split it in two, you actually get two, seven, eight rhythms. Okay. So for those, the other part of the band is playing... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So two of those cycles overlap with one of the seven, four. Okay. So it's not like, but wouldn't that equal like a four, eight kind of thing? You know, I'm totally out of my depth, but. Yeah, well, it's really, the only way that this makes any sense is because most of Korean rhythm, like a lot of other uh, drum circles or drum traditions around the world, you hit a large gong to mark off the cycle. Okay. So in Korea, um, like Japan and other places, it's on beat one. So when, when you hear this sort of composite rhythm, you hear a really large gong stroke on beat one of the 7-4. But then all these other loud instruments, you hear smaller gong cycles on the first 7-8 and the second 7-8. So you, when, when you're counting it out, um, I'm going to have to count it off. On the end of four, you hear another gong cycle. So sort of like this, just a big one. So gong, two, three, four. Gong, five, six, seven, gong, two, oh. three, four, gong, five, six, like that. Yeah, so when you're playing, when you're really into it, you're just in the rhythm. It doesn't take as much concentration. Yeah, yeah no, no. I mean, everyone hopefully is grooving on it, so you're not, <laughs> you're not sitting there counting out numbers and subdivisions uh, in your head. No, no, I'm, I'm hoping, and, and when the musicians uh, who performed on this, this, this piece, by the way, this recording, is that one really great teacher of mine for Korea, who oh, I was great. able to bring to UBC in 2009, and he and his students recorded the piece. So it's not me, it's actually a, a professional Korean group. Okay, so shall we try playing a bit of it? Yeah, maybe, um, I can't remember now how the intro goes, maybe just pull in... To about second minute, around minute two or something, if it allows you to buffer up to there. Uh, if not, we can do it just from the beginning. Well, it's buffering way. Um, so it's just playing from the beginning. Is this okay? Oh, that's all right. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to say an intro as we start? Okay. So th- this is the intro. <laughs> the intro to the <laughs> intro. Um, this is... Um, uh, I mean, I guess the basic rhythm for the for the for the rhythm nerds, it's uh, it's four beats, but it's twelve eight. But it's 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 kind of a, an opening groovy section, and this will transition then into the the opening shaman rhythm. Um, and this is something actually my teacher wanted to add. I wanted to start with the groovy shaman rhythm, but he said, no, no, we should start with this this kind of building excitement or tension, and then it breaks into the, the shaman rhythm. Will you like get? I'll turn off our mics, but can you give me a point yeah, on the yeah. shamanic rhythm? Okay, yeah. groove out, everybody. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM.
back on the art support on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm here with ethnomusicologist Dr. Nathan Hesslink. Got it. And tell us again just what we heard. Yeah, so this is, uh, again, a piece called Han Mi Karak. I, I, I actually didn't explain what the actual title means. Han means um, from Korea, so the Korean rhythms, and Mi is the Chinese character for the U.S. So at the time I was in the U.S., uh, and so um, the, the piece literally means rhythms or a combination of rhythms from Korea and the U.S. or from North America. And the piece we just, or the rhythm we just faded out on is one of these, as I said, one of these interesting asymmetrical um, shamanic rhythms from South Korea. I like it. I was privately having a religious moment. <laughs> I like shamanism. Um, so tell us about the event coming up at the Chan Center. It's this weekend. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the event, the, the main event, I guess, is uh, will be this Saturday at 8 p.m. And um, the name of the concert itself is Kim Dok-soo Samulnori. Um, and just to very briefly explain what that is, Kim Dok-soo refers to an artist's name. Um, and probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous, um, well, certainly living percussionist now, but maybe one of the most famous percussionists of the 20th century in South Korea. And he was the co-founder back in the 1970s of a new but related style of Korean percussion called Samul Nori. So Samul Nori is the second part of the, the title of the concert. Samul Nori literally means uh, the performance art of four instruments. So essentially what this fellow did, Kim Dok-soo, with a couple other uh, young men at the time in the 1970s, was to take this really active countryside drumming style and bring it onto the concert hall stage and to turn it into chamber music. So for someone like me who's been studying Korean percussion a long time, Kim Dok-soo is probably the most famous person that anyone could meet. I've met him a few times. Uh, he is kind of like a rock star um, in Korea and abroad. And um, uh, he's only brought his group to Vancouver one other time, I think in 1986 or 88 for the World Expo. And so it's been a really long time since he's been here. And um, he's expanded the tradition, so it's going to be more than just four people playing. He's actually brought a whole group of young musicians, basically the hottest young percussionists in South Korea today. Oh. And the concert will be probably half um, playing from the floor, like a purely musical performance, and the other half will be done choreographed, danced, where all of the instruments are strapped on the body and just absolutely incredible choreography, including, uh, it's hard for me to describe over a microphone, but they, they wear hats with these long spinning tassels, well, really like strips of paper that, that create um, geometric designs in the air at the same time that they're playing and dancing. And it's just really, um, just to get, get, gather a bunch of adjectives that don't always go together, it's, it's really sort of um, frenetic, crazy, beautiful um, music and dance. Wow, you must be really excited. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think my my students have gotten tired of me sort of going, <laughs> sort of gushing about the group for the last uh, probably four months or something. But it's it's really, uh, it's 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 really unbelievable that they're coming. I should also mention that there will be a free drumming workshop, which will happen the day before. So this Friday, in just two days, um, it's going to happen at the Telus Theater, which is inside the Chan, and that's from one thirty to two thirty p.m. And it's open to the public. It's free. Um, we'll have lots of drums there already. You don't need to own a drum. <laughs> And it's, it's really for pure beginners. And a number of uh, sort of his main uh, teachers will be there leading this workshop. And so I really encourage listeners, um, even if you're not coming to the concert, but especially if you are, to actually come get hands-on uh, on the instruments. Wow. And so do you get to host him and show him around? Um, we'll have to see. That's another thing, too. Um, uh, Korean musicians, like a lot of musicians around the world, uh, leave a lot of things sort of... Um, they just sort of go with the flow or sort of what's happening when they're here. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, 
local, very powerful Koreans who will be ushering him around in right. a number of things. I'll, I'll be seeing him most of the day on Friday because we have that workshop. I have some other things that I'm doing with him. Uh, I'll be seeing him at a dinner, a special dinner Friday night as well. Um, but outside of that, it'll probably... Uh, I have to sort of count those moments as sort of valuable moments, even in South Korea when I when I see him. And, and he knows who I am, but it's still, it's always just, you know, 15 minutes there, 20 minutes there, something yeah. like that. So I'll, I'll, I'll get as much of it as I can. Oh, right on. That's wonderful. Um, and, and so we'll be talking about this event and we'll post it on our Facebook and so on. So, but you also have another interest in music, which is British rock. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, one of, one of the nice things um, when you've been teaching long enough and you've, you've done enough in, in a particular area, but, but also in my, my area of research, uh, it's common for ethnomusicologists to take on a second or secondary research area. And I've, I've been interested in British rock my whole life. It's really, it's kind of the music of my older brothers. I'm not from England, obviously, but, um, but it's music I grew up listening to and I really deeply love and appreciate, especially the percussion or the rhythm elements. And so I had a sabbatical a couple years ago and so went with my family, lived for a year in England and uh, lived in Oxford and basically researched Radiohead for the whole year. Oh. And so during that time, um, especially fell in love with one song. My family and students are sick of me talking about this song, but this one particular song that just completely grabbed my imagination, especially because of the rhythm. It, it, it's a song that thousands of fans have tried to figure out the rhythm of this one song, which is called Pyramid Song. And so I ended up uh, actually writing an article. If people just Google my name with Pyramid Song, though, it's, it's a free online article. It's open access. So uh, basically I document uh, hundreds of different listeners' impression of the rhythm of this one song. And uh, it's it's a beautiful song anyway, but it's it's um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was a kind of a musicological mystery for me and many others, and mm-hmm. so uh, I spent a, a good actually three years thinking about this song, and then and then finally writing about it, but but sort of in cahoots with all this this really yeah. avid fan base. Did you ever try to contact the drummer himself and ask him? I, I actually ended up meeting um, three of the five of them, and I did end up cornering Tom York, the lead singer. We, we bumped into a street on the, on the high street in Oxford, and um, <laughs> at the risk of being funny, I'm not going to give the answer over the air because yeah. I'd waited so long to, right. to actually talk to him. So I've, I've actually written that up in a blog, which I'll, I'll probably put up online at some point, but I'd waited so long to, to actually ask him. And the answer he, he gave me was um, not what I was hoping for. I was hmm. actually hoping for a more complex answer, and he, he basically said it was a pretty straight you know a straight meter he'd been working with but anyways that that in itself was really it was really amazing that's funny it's just what a story like there you are and you literally just ran into him like oh my god there he is a, a week before i i've been there for a year and and i knew they all lived lived there in fact his house was just two blocks from the college where i was going for lunch <laughs> that day actually and uh and i could tell he didn't want to be bothered so i, I got a good about six and a half minutes out of him wow. uh, including asking him the question about pyramid song wow it's like it's almost like yeah, going to the guru and hoping for <laughs> <laughs> something really big and complex and, and getting just simple. Yeah, like, like all, all is nothingness or that, that, that kind <laughs> of uh, something akin to that. Wow, well, I'm really excited to hear the song. So anything else before? No, I just uh, thank you for having me on the station. As I said, I, I had a, a grad student who had a show you know, many years ago with CITR, and so I've kind of posted in and out. I'm just, I'm just glad that, uh, without sounding too political here at the last second, I'm just glad that college radio is still alive. So Well alive, yeah. <laughs> and it's such a pleasure to have you on. I'm actually really excited. I didn't know much about the UBC music program, and I'd love to join in in whatever way students can, you know, without being 
a graduate level yeah. student. But yeah. And it's great to hear your enthusiasm and such an interesting story. So hope to have you on again sometime or come back again when there's other events happening. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, so... Um, and have fun this weekend. It sounds really great. So tell anything you want to. We're going to play Radiohead Pyramid Song. Anything you want to say directly about it before we play it? Um, just for fun, uh, for those of you who haven't heard this piece, that well, it's a beautiful song anyway. So part of me just wants to say just sit back and listen to it because it's, it's just it's really unbelievably beautiful. But for those of you who want to, as you listen to the opening, try to clap your hands or tap your hand where you think the beat is that that's where that's where it gets a lot of people in trouble and you have to wait actually halfway through the song before the drums come in to give you where the beat is so for those of you who want to challenge yourself as you're listening to this try to try to tap along okay here we go thank you again dr nathan hesslink all right you're welcome and here's radiohead pyramid song
create suspense. You maybe not often uh, documentaries have that type of suspense, but and then there's hilarious characters, an American character that wants to donate his penis, and a, a famous Icelander. Uh, adventurer explorer type guy who's getting old and he's anxious because his penis is shrinking as he becomes you know into his 90s and it's just yeah it's really amusing and worth going to so that's this sunday the 16th at the rio theater so do check that out in the mindfulness movies tuesday march 18th and it looks really good too. So the dance festival, we are sponsoring the Vancouver International Dance Festival. So a lot of people from CITR are going. We're going to have some arts reporters out. And so we'll be covering that quite extensively in the next couple of weeks on the 19th and on the 26th. So I know we gave away tickets as part of our fun drive giveaway to the Guangdong Modern Dance Company. So I'm sure that was good. And... Yeah, I'm just kind of randomly checking out stuff. I like Spanish dance. My sister lived in Spain and I looked into ticket or I looked into flamenco and so on and pretty fascinated with the tradition. Speaking of rhythms, we had the ethnomusicologist on earlier. The complicated complicated rhythms in flamenco and it's definitely, you know, I'm not very rhythmic to begin with, but it's very difficult to do so but I do like to watch Spanish dance and the performers and so there's a good one on March 22nd and 23rd at 8 p.m. Israel Galvan uh, and his dance piece is called La Edad de Oro a bold and virtuistic dance artist Israel Galvan makes his first appearance in Vancouver showcasing his unique and innovative approach to flamenco so he's born in Sevilla um, and has received numerous accolades and his awards, awards for his work, um, including the Spanish National Dance Award. So he's faithful to the spirit of flamenco's long lineage and history while smashing stereotypes and preconceptions. Uh, and he's got a singer, a cantor, David Lagos, and a guitarist, Alfredo Lagos. Um, and so they mine the popular conception of flamenco's golden age in the late 1800s through the 1930s. It uh, doesn't look like he's a solo dancer and actually never seen um, a male solo dancer. I mean, the females dance solo, um, but that'll be interesting. I do hope to go to that. That's probably the one I hope to go to the most. And uh, our Adam Janets is going to the Kuroko dance next week. So we'll be reporting back on those and do check it out. The festival is features artists from China, Spain, the United States, Germany, Japan, and Canada performing techniques and styles as diverse as buto, hip hop, flamenco, ballet, and cutting edge cutting edge contemporary dance. It started on March seventh, and it's going quite to the end of the month till March 29th. So we invite you to experience a three weeks of performances, workshops, and some of the venues are the Roundhouse, the Playhouse and different landmarks throughout Vancouver, such as the Woodward's Atrium. So you can check that out at vidf.ca, and we'll definitely keep you updated on that. So we had a ticket giveaway um, for an event that's still coming up. I believe it's still coming up. The screening is... Well, I'm going to tell you about it first... It's a top 10. Coming soon, Asphalt Watches. Uh-oh. 
when is it? Okay, well, it won at the Toronto Film Festival, a, a new start film. Oh, here's the screenings. Yay, here it is. Runs Friday, March 14th, Saturday, March 15th, and Sunday, March 16th. So there's quite a few showings, six showings. So two on each day, one at 6.30 and one at 8.30 p.m. at the Pacific Cinematheque, Friday through Sunday, March 16th. And why this caught my eye was because Shane Amon is a Facebook friend, a former Cinematheque staffer, and he's co-directing with Seth Scriver. And it's a trippy animated road movie. So it did win the Best Canadian First Feature Honours at Toronto International Film Festival. And it's based on the artist's own hitchhiking misadventures. Um, And so it has an oddball duel <laughs> an oddball duo, Bucktooth Cloud and Skeleton Hat. So they embark from Chilliwack, BC on a crazed, often caustically funny journey across Canada. So they spent eight years crafting psychedelic hand drawn flash animation and created an original score. So it says hilarious, grotesque, and utterly original adult animated feature, though reminiscent of the gleefully rude late night fair of South Park and Adult Swim. Uh, Scriver and Eamon's vision is daringly experimental and wholly unique. So um, it looks really good. I'm just going to say, and knowing nothing about it, it might be a guy thing. I mean, I'm just speaking for myself as a girl. Grotesque kind of animation isn't, you know, my thing. But, you know, uh, I do know for sure that Shane Eamon's a super talented artist. And this is worth checking out. And I'm going to put on our social media page and also our Twitter page an invitation to you to contact the Arts Report and get two tickets to Asphalt Watches. It's definitely worth seeing. So, yeah, it just reminds me of a funny story. Shane Eamon used to be the roommate of Dan from Destroyer and a bunch of guys lived in a this bachelor house kind of a rundown bachelor house and it was a really fun exciting place to hang out but cleanliness was not top of mind and I remember the bathroom like no one had ever cleaned it and it was just black with mold like the um the toilet was just it was totally truly disgusting covered in mold and the walls and you know you just didn't want to go in there and uh, I'll just remember this, my sort of most vivid memory of Shane is that he said, you know, I'm going to clean this bathroom. And he went in, closed the door, ran the shower at like as hot, scalding hot as hot it, as it could go and just disappeared in there for like an hour and with bleach and just ran this shower for an hour at scalding hot. I don't know what he did in there, but I just remember like really admiring him for doing that um so that brought back a funny memory and there's another event i want to tell you about that megan our lovely previous arts director and host is putting on uh is involved with here it is shift and shout and i promised her i'd talk about it so the shift theater uh is having an event to promote itself and raise some funds. So when is it? They've got a festival coming up 
Act One Festival, June 18th to 21st. So we'll definitely be covering that. In the meantime, they're trying to raise some money through a karaoke event. So let's see if I can get that. Advanced $10 tickets, Friday, March 14th, 8 p.m. Sideshow Studios. That's um, number 15 West 2nd Avenue. So there's some musical improv, karaoke dance party, confident enough to rock some Celine, Cher or Madonna like the pros, put your name in the Dariyoki box to leave your song choice up to an anonymous donor. Any song from Gangnam Style to Total Eclipse of the Heart is up for purchase. So I guess that's kind of a trend. People pay to do karaoke and then the money goes to Shift Theater. So yeah, I'd definitely be up for some Celine, Cher or Madonna for sure. Um, I, uh, those are what I choose anyway when I do karaoke. So please check it out. We'll also be promoting it on our Facebook page and so on. Shift Theater, Shift and shift and Shout. That's a tongue twister, tattler, twisting karaoke dance party, 7.30 p.m. at Sideshow Studios. So I guess we can kind of sign off, but I want you to hang around for Arts on Air uh, and coming up next week, I'm going to be talking about Helen Lawrence. It's a film that's opening, um, and it's made by kind of a collective of artists, but the foremost being Stan Douglas, a very famous Canadian artist from the Vancouver School. And it's like a, a film noir art film. I'm looking forward to that. We James Connell is coming on to talk about the Vancouver International Dance Festival and there'll be a few other things as usual so do check out the event um, that the ethnomusicologist was talking about Kim Duck Sue and Samuel Nore at the Chan Center this Saturday so you know that was really fun to listen to and do contact us if you're listening arts at citr.ca or tweet me, Facebook me, and I'll give you Asphalt Watches tickets. You want to go see this film. It sounds like it's generated a lot of attention. Uh, so check it out. And I'm going to play a song because I just told that story about Shane Amen living um, with Dan from Destroyer and cleaning the bathroom. So I'm just going to leave you with some Destroyer as we sign off into the night. Now, which song would I like to play? He's got so many good ones, doesn't he? So thanks again. Thanks again for Fun Drive and tuning in. And this is Destroyer with an Actor's Revenge. Come back next week, please, on Wednesday, March 19th. And stay tuned right now for Arts on Air. This is Sarah Lapsley on CITR 101.9 FM. Goodbye. An actor will seek revenge I don't know why and I don't know when There'll be talk, there'll be action Boys demanding satisfaction from girls Oh, you'd hate to play a girl An actor will seek revenge Too strong, he was weird and he was wrong. A bloodless carpet down, throwing everybody out. The kids twist and shout until the wound fucking wrecks it.
Upon the ones who 